So this morning we'll pick up chapter 5 and the book Deity and Decree by Samuel Renahan. We've been using it sort of as a, a guide rail for our study on the attributes of God. <clears throat> and so we'll pick up this morning on chapter 5, Bi- Biblical Foundations of the Doctrine of the Holy Spirit, Part 1. Now, I recognize that we're, we're talking about the Holy Spirit the Spirit. Uh, well, sorry, we're talking about the Trinity. Did I say Holy Spirit? I meant the Holy Trinity. Um, I recognize we're talking about the Trinity. It's a, it's a big subject, as all of the subjects we've talked about so far. When we're, when we're thinking about God, we can think, we can stretch our minds, but never fully grasp God because we're, we're limited. Um, but it's something worth, worth reaching for, worth groping for, worth, worth thinking through. So we want to continue to do that this morning. So we'll pick up and the Doctrine of the Trinity, Part 1. Now, the Doctrine of the Trinity has been called the Matrix of Theology. In systematic theology books, you'll see um, different chapters on different topics, and one of those topics is usually on the Trinity. Even the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith, the second chapter is about God and the Holy Trinity, and it's the same in the Westminster. That, that topic is chapter two in those confessions because it was viewed, rightly so, as the foundation of everything that, that follows. So everything that follows chapter two is built upon the reality that our God is triune, holy and, and triune. So God's decree, uh, creation, salvation, worship, all of this is the outworking of our triune God, okay? Studying the Trinity helps us to think about how our God eternally exists in three persons. But studying the Trinity is also a study that I think gives comfort to the Christian for our salvation and for our sanctification. And so it is, it's studying God, it's, it's understanding God as divine and triune and how he eternally exists in three, but it's also good for, for the heart. It's good for us to meditate on the Trinity as we think about our own salvation and sanctification. That's why pastors in earlier centuries wrote catechisms. Right? Catechism is a, is a question and answer form of study. They were written really to teach doctrine to the families within the church, to the little ones within the church. And the Heidelberg Catechism is a good example of um, a catechism that teaches, hopefully, I think, the Trinity. Uh, Zacharias Ursinus, he was 29 when he wrote the Heidelberg Catechism. And he wrote it as a professor, instructor, to train pastors who would be preachers in Protestant churches. And listen to what what he says um, in question one of the Heidelberg Catechism question and that it's in your notes there as well question what is your only comfort in life and in death answer that i am not my own but belong body and soul and life and in death to my faithful savior jesus christ he has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil he also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, 
all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to him, Christ, by the Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. So this, this question answer catechism here was written to communicate and express confidence in our triune God to save us, but not only to save us, but to sanctify us. Right? He's, he's teaching about how the Christians should think about their salvation in a Trinitarian way. Another example of Trinitarian thinking that you can see in our Reformed forefathers was on the idea of the covenant of redemption. Now, covenant of redemption, that may be new, new language or a new idea to you, but I want to sort of define it. So the covenant of redemption is referred to a, a pre-temporal covenant. In other words, a covenant before the creation of the world. The covenant of redemption is a doctrine developed in the 16th century, and it rooted Christian salvation in the persons of the Trinity. The doctrine teaches that before creation, we see that in Ephesians 1.11, the Father, in covenantal agreement with the Son, appoints the Son as the Redeemer of the elect. The Spirit would then apply the blood-bought benefits of the Son and salvation to the elect and sanctify them and bring them to the end of their glorified bodies. Now, more could be said about that, but the belief was that God's ways in creation and salvation flow out of the nature of God as triune. And so because God is triune, the root of salvation can be biblically explained or defended in a Trinitarian way. So that was the sort of goal there. God, the Father, chooses, elects a people to be the reward for the Son. The Spirit dies for uh, and atones for the sins of the elect, those who the Father have given to the Son. And the Spirit applies the work of Christ to the life of the believer, justifying them, and he sanctifies them. So it's not just he gives it to them and says, okay, you're good, and walks away. But it's the Spirit who's working in the life of the Christian to bring them to that glorious end of their glorified state. So salvation can be explained in a Trinitarian way. And I just put a resource there in the, in the handout, a really good book that helps him thinking through that is The Trinity and the Covenant of Redemption, uh, Divine Covenants. It's written by J.V. Fesco. Really, really good book that helps to sort of work through that. Okay, so that was sort of my intro to the, to the class. I wanna talk through non-Trinitarian doctrine, non-Trinitarian doctrine. So we'll start with looking at the Trinity negatively in that sense. Um, what have we seen historically um, in the category of those who would deny the Trinity and how have those ideas influenced and affected the church? And then we'll look at um, those who upheld Trinitarian doctrine, doctrine and how do we view that um, by looking at scripture, okay? So non-Trinitarian doctrine. The Christian church has always been Trinitarian, but the church has always had the need to defend its Trinitarian theology. As early as the third century, thoughts about the Trinity have been um, needed to be defended. So the church had to draw lines in the sand to say, 
this is what the church believes and this is what it doesn't believe concerning what God is and what God is not. Sibelius, he's our first figure um, in the third century. He was a third century theologian who was most well known for opposing God as triune. He believed that the one God manifested himself at different times and for different reasons and three different modes. You might hear it talked about as modalism. Sibelian taught that God manifested himself as the father at creation, then as the son in redemption, and then as the spirit in sanctification. Never simultaneously, but at different modes for different purposes, okay? Sibelius tried to make sense, I think his goal was to try to make sense of the Bible's teaching of God as one. Now, if God is one and Jesus is God, how do we make sense of that? If God is one, which is clearly taught in the Old Testament, and yet Jesus Christ is fully and truly God, how do we understand and defend the oneness of God? Sibelius thought he was trying to keep Christianity pure. So his, his goal was to keep Christianity, he thought, undefiled from Trinitarian thought. He said, well, we have to uphold monotheism, that our God is one. How do we do that? And so he considered himself defending God. And as he tried to work, as he worked out his theology and trying to make sense of our God who is monotheistic father is God and yet we see throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament as well but specifically in the New Testament Jesus being called God and the father are one the spirit being referred to as as God the spirit is God or the spirit of God he considered himself defending um, God's oneness Sibelius was eventually declared a heretic by the church and excommunicated for his non-trinitarian views so the church gathered um, ecumenically, so the church, uh, the, the, the larger church gathered together and formally declared Sibelius a heretic and put him out of the church because what he was articulating about God was not consistent with the scriptures. Even in his sincerity to defend monotheism, he denied that God is triune. Now, during the Reformation, the church continued to fight and try to uphold Trinitarian theology. Another famous name, Michael Servetus. He was a 15th century Spanish theologian, and he belonged to this famous converted Jewish family. Now, unfortunately, he also taught against Trinitarian doctrine. Now, he wrote a book. He was so uh, zealous to defend um, what he thought God as one and the oneness of God that he wrote a book entitled On the Errors of the Trinity. So he was, he was very zealous and knowledgeable and zealous but, and sincere, but, but wrong. His goal was to try to restate the doctrine of God in ways that were not Trinitarian. So like Sibelius, Servetus, he wanted to restore Christianity to what he thought was the original version and purity. He thought he was keeping Christianity pure. Sebastian taught that the Father alone is God, and he said that Jesus is only the Son 
as one who has a supernatural origin. Not is God, but one with a supernatural origin. He also taught that the spirit was just the impersonal power of God. But this is how it affected his understanding of salvation. If Jesus is not um, a savior, then he's just a teacher. And if he's just a teacher, of course, he's not able to save. And if he's merely a teacher, then the cross is not atonement for sin, but Jesus was merely a martyr. Now, he was um, a part of a Jewish family, so I think maybe their theology may have affected how he understood the Trinity as, as well. But it stripped the cross of its power and it stripped Christ of his, his deity. <clears throat> now, it's interesting here um, because Saturday morning, a few Jehovah's Witnesses came to our house and all of this is fresh in my mind. So I'm like, <laughs> I get to talk about this <laughs> with somebody. <laughs> so I'm in the room and Kareem's like, Des, and I come out and she's like, they're here, the Jehovah's Witnesses. <laughs> and I literally said to myself, yes. <laughs> so I go to the door and I open, sweet lady, um, her son, same was uh, Trevor, and she had a younger lady with her. And we, we talked for, I don't know how long it was, maybe 30 minutes or so, maybe 45. Um, and so I'm, I'm thinking through, I'm, I'm talking with her, and I'm asking her questions about, about uh, the Trinity, and it always comes back to the deity of Christ. Is he God? Is he not? How do we know? What scriptures can we look at to see that? And we're, we're not going around and around, but it's a really helpful conversation. And I, I learned some things. Some things I thought that Jehovah's Witnesses believe, maybe in past conversations with them, um, but that she sort of affirmed for me. Well, not that, but, but this. So it was really helpful. Um, but in that conversation, I couldn't help but bring up Sibelius and Servetus. And I talked to her about what they believed. And it's like, you know, this isn't really a new idea, but we see this even early on as far as the third century and the 15th century. It's, it's fresh in my mind. I'm like, I, I, I got to get it out. <laughs> the test run and so I'm talking to her about it and she was very very gracious we had a great conversation um, but it did it came back to Trinitarian theology and um, Christ was he God is he not God and we got to look at Psalm 110 and Hebrews 2 and some of the original language and I think I gave her some things to think about um, she gave me some things to consider or I learned about Jehovah's Witnesses that I didn't know before but it was a really good conversation but it, it came back to Christ. And my, my concern that I share with her was that if we get Christ, the, if we get the divinity of Christ wrong, then we get the gospel wrong. And if we get the gospel wrong, then what are we preaching to people? Yeah. Are we preaching a gospel that can save them? Or is it some other gospel? And I share that with her and she, she, she thought for a sec and she said, well, you, you mentioned some things that I hadn't thought about. Thank me for my time. I thanked her. The elder came up. There's always an elder. He comes up and I'm thinking he's coming. Oh, I get, I get to talk to him too. But he was like, actually, we have to leave. We got to go to another neighborhood. They gave me a track um, and, and that was it. You can pray for them. I don't remember her name, but her son was Trevor. Um, and there was a young lady with her as well. Um, so just the Lord knows who they are pray for them because I got to share the gospel with them and we got to talk about at least the Trinity. But it's just very interesting that some of these same ideas that she was sharing with me, like, man, this is really interesting. These are very close ideas to um, 
what you see in these earlier um, heretics. And I don't, I'm not saying that to be mean, but I'm saying that because the church formally declared them as heretics, because of their Trinitarian theology, because how they understood the Trinity and the divinity of Christ stripped um, the gospel of its power in salvation, right? So these are tied together. <clears throat> we, uh, as the church, believe that um, Jesus is, is God. As Christians, we believe that when Jesus died on the cross, that he was able to make a full atonement for sin as God and take the full wrath of God, right? We believe he had to be truly man because only man can atone for man's sin. So we have to hold that Jesus is truly God and truly man in order to really hold to a gospel that, that saves. If Jesus isn't truly God and truly man, then you introduce all type of other serious problems that you have to try to answer by going around the Bible's teaching on the divinity of Christ, which are in connection with God as triune. All right, let's, let's look at the next section there in the handout. A plurality in the Old Testament. Plurality in the Old Testament. When we start to think about how to talk about God as Trinity, it can be intimidating. So as you read books on the Trinity, as I've read books on the Trinity, or listen to lectures on the Trinity, um, a really good book written by uh, Matthew Barrett. Um, man, he has a couple good ones. None greater um, and then he has a recent book man it slips in my mind now um, um, I, I'll, I'll share it later if, if it comes back but it's on the Trinity and as I'm listening through this book I did an audiobook as I'm listening through it I'm like man when we talk about the Trinity it, it requires like precision because you could be trying to talk about the Trinity and communicate it and end up saying something that the church said was heresy it's like, well, I don't want to step on that, <laughs> you know, stone. So you have to sort of walk, walk carefully. And that shouldn't cause us to shy away from thinking about it. But it was just something that I thought about, like the thoughts about the Trinity and communicating it requires precision. Um, so we'll work, we'll work through this slowly and think through the scriptures and look at how the Bible formulates its doctrine of the Trinity. But first, let's look at Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 5. Let me have someone read that. Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 5. Okay, thank you. So the Old Testament is unashamedly monotheistic. Without a question, without a doubt. Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5 is part of the Shema. Shema means hear in Hebrew, to hear, to give ear to. And this section of scripture is one of the most important prayers in Jewish tradition. And straight out of the gate, it starts with, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So there's an affirmation, a strong affirmation here that our God is, is one. It declares the... The, the oneness of God. Now, you heard us Voss in volume one of his systematic theology. He has a really helpful section on the Trinity where he, there's, he just asks these, a ton of questions and then he answers them. It's re really helpful, sort of a catechism format. In this section, in his section on the Trinity in volume one, 
he's trying to find um, specific proof for, or he talks about the, the difficulty or the, um, that we should give thought to not just trying to find specific proof of the Trinity in the Old Testament. And this is what he says, so just explain that. He says, under the Old Covenant dispensation, the concept of the oneness of God had to be deeply impressed upon Israel's consciousness in the face of all polytheistic inclinations, right? So he's, he's given thought to, when we go to the Old Testament and we're looking in the Old Testament for what we see in the New Testament concerning the Trinity, we have to remember that the oneness of God, that God is uh, mono, the monotheistic uh, doctrine had to be pressed upon the people's conscience because they were surrounded by polytheistic nations. So there's an emphasis there. And I think that's helpful and important when we think about what's revealed in the Old Testament versus what's confirmed more clearly in the New Testament about the Trinity. First, we'll look at a few places in the Old Testament where we see plurality, and then we'll look at some places in the New Testament. Now, in the New Testament, plurality is shown in the name Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, we see plurality when scripture uses God's title, Yahweh, but it's distinct from servant and distinct from spirit. Okay, so that's what we'll, we'll look at. First, Genesis 1, 1 to 3. Let me have someone read that for us. So in Genesis 1 there, in the beginning, God, um, it's, it's Elohim, it's, it's Yahweh, and uh, it emphasizes the power of God, Elohim. It's usually talked about in creation or even when God is at, at war for his people. It, it's showing his power. Uh, God created the heavens and the earth, and then you jump down a bit, and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep. There seems to be something happening there in the language concerning God. Psalm 110.1, the Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Um, in the literal standard version, that's the LSV there, uh, a Psalm of David, a declaration of Yahweh to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So there's Yahweh there and then there's Lord. Isaiah 61.1, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord, Yahweh, God, had, the, the, the Lord, Yahweh, has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prisons to those who are bound. Again, you see Yahweh there, and then they're speaking of this other one, this one who Yahweh has anointed and will send. And we see that picked up on in the New Testament, in the LSV, the spirit of the Lord Yahweh is on me because Yahweh anointed me to proclaim tidings to the humble. He sent me to bind the broken of heart, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of bands to those who are bound, to set them free. So the language that's used here 
Again, in the Old Testament, we see plurality when the scriptures use God's title Yahweh, but it's distinct from spirit and distinct from servant. And so we ask, okay, what's what's happening there? Um, I think it's God revealing himself as triune by these different titles. Plurality in the New Testament. Let's jump over to the New Testament. When we think back to uh, Voss and his reformed dogmatics, the revelation of God as triune is there in the Old Testament, but the New Testament gives more data and it gives more clear data about God as triune. Voss says, we must not imagine that the Old Testament saints were able to read in the Old Testament everything that we can read there in the light of the New Testament. Yet what we read in it is clearly the purpose of the Holy Spirit, for he had the scriptures of the Old Testament written not only for then, but also for now. So you'll, you'll hear the idea that the New Testament shines light on the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, we see uh, salvation, Jesus Christ concealed. We also see the Trinity concealed. In the New Testament, we see Jesus Christ revealed. We also see the Trinity further revealed, right? And so we can look back on the Old Testament in light of the New and see these things. So we'll, we'll look at a few verses here where we see plurality in the New Testament. We see the same plurality in the New Testament, but there's, again, more data and more clear data. It's more clearly revealed in the New Testament by the name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God also reveals himself as triune in the distinct operations and actions of the three persons that we see talked about in the New Testament. Matthew 3, 16 to 17. Let me have someone read that for us. Matthew 3, 16 to 17. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son, whom I am well pleased. Okay, so we see there Jesus being baptized, the spirit of God descending like a dove, the voice from heaven, Father, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. A great place to go when we're thinking about Trinitarian theology, um, explicit scripture that I think can help us easily explain. Matthew 28, 19. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Um, Calvin had a really interesting um, thought on this in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, thinking about uh, baptism here. Now, John Calvin was a pedo-baptist. As Reformed Baptists, we would have disagreements with pedo-baptists. But I think what he connects here with faith is really good and helpful. Um, he taught that since faith is supposed to be placed in one God, and he says, not scattered and placed on anyone or anything else, baptism in the singular name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit shows that the three persons in whom God alone is known are divine in essence. Since baptism is the name, since baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is to baptize in the name of God. So he's saying God does not give his glory to another. 
we ought to place faith in God. If God is not triune, or one God eternally existing in three persons, then for him to say baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is to have our faith in multiple things. So we have faith in the Father, and we have faith in the Son, and we have faith in the Holy Spirit. He says, no, God is not saying our faith ought to be spread abroad. We have faith in God, even at baptism. Our faith is placed in God and God alone. And so his argument is that if God is telling us to baptize in various names and baptism is associated, baptism is associated with faith, then our faith is in various things. But no, we baptize in the name, singular, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in the name of God, and we have faith in God and our baptism. That's sort of his, his argument. Um, I, I don't know if you're following that, but I thought it was really interesting to, to, to think about. Yes, with this text, it, it hurts our English grammar. Yeah. So you would think it would be like, you know, more than one. Plural, right? Plural, right? It's like right. singular, and then we're adding this plurality. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah and you can feel that tension in yeah. your grammar. Yeah, yep. yeah. Really interesting to think about. Now, another verse I think that um, is, is really helpful is 2 Corinthians 13, 14. And I want to draw out something here that um, we maybe have, haven't thought about before. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. It says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Now, the Apostle Paul was trained in Old Testament theology and writings, right? He was of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, he says, a Hebrew of Hebrews. So his Trinitarian benediction here in 2 Corinthians 13, 14 is actually something we see in the Old Testament. It was practiced actually by the priests, and we see it in Numbers 6, 23 to 27. I'm going to read it here. Numbers 6, 23 to 27. It says, speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, thus you shall bless the people of God. You shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. Now, this is something I hadn't thought about before or seen prior to, prior to thinking through this. It was very interesting to find this in different, different writings or this interpretation at least. The priests in the Old Testament would give a benediction to the people of God and it was a threefold benediction in the Lord's name. It was the Lord's name set upon his people. Paul is giving a threefold benediction of the Lord's name upon his people, except in 2 Corinthians 13, each divine person, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, blesses the people of God in the name of the one monotheistic God. Really, really interesting there. This common practice in the Old Testament, priests blessing the people with this sort of threefold benediction, Paul picks up on this, not with a new idea, but an old idea that brings out Trinitarian theology. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Father, the Holy Spirit, the love, the, the grace of the Lord, the love of the Father, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Be blessed in the name of God. Um, just really interesting to think about and really, really helpful, I think. Now, the doctrine of the Trinity, as Kyle rightly said, can be hard uh, 
and a complex thing to think through. And you do feel that tension. There were some points in the conversation with the Jehovah's Witnesses yesterday where I felt the tension. Well, I wouldn't see it like that, but like this. But I understand how you could see it like that, but it's really this. And so just trying to, trying to work through that. And even in our own, our own hearts and minds, when we pray, you know, do I pray to the Father? Can I pray to the Spirit? Is that okay? Do I pray to the Son? Okay, God, we ask you for this, right? <laughs> just settle the debate. But th- these are things we have to sort of think through and, and work through. I think it's good for us to be able to think through them together as, as we look at Scripture. Our human minds were, are trying to understand God. The term Trinity describes the relationship not of three gods, but of one God who is three persons. We're not saying one plus one plus one equals one. And we're not saying that there are three distinct gods. The Father is a God, the Son is a God, and the Holy Spirit is a God. Uh, Both of those are two uh, ditches that we could fall into. The Trinity does not mean that God God eternally exists as three different gods, but as three persons. Sometimes it can be hard to explain and even harder to understand. But a classic statement that the church has confessed on the Trinity is found in the Athanasian Creed. And I wanted to be able to read this together. Um, Maybe we will. Let's do it. Um, So this is Old Crete, third century, fourth century. Um, This is what the church stated really against the heretics and against those who were excommunicated to say what the church believes about God. What God is, what God is not. Right, so this is one of the first um, formal documents out of the church uh, confessing its uh, theology about God. And it's, it's an old, it's old, it's true. And I think it's good for us to read together to, to remember because some sometimes we're trying to say old things in a new way and it can be confusing and as we're trying to sort of work through it. But I think it's good to say old things in, in an old way sometimes. And it also teaches, how, teaches us how to think through the Trinity. Now, we're going to break this up into sections. It's, it's long, but I think we can do it. So I'm going to have someone start off, and then um, I'll tell you when to stop. I'll, I won't make you read the whole thing, but just read, and then I'll tell you when to stop. Um, who wants to start with whoever desires to be saved? Norm, go for it. Whoever desires to be saved should, above all, hold to the Catholic faith. Anyone who does not keep full and unbroken now this is the Catholic faith, that we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity. Neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. For the person of the Father is a distant person, the person of the Son is another, and that of the Holy Spirit is still another. But the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one. Glory equal, their majesty Okay, thank you. I'll pick up. The quality the Father has, the Son has, and the Holy Spirit has. The Father is uncreated, the Son is uncreated, the Holy Spirit is uncreated. The Father is immeasurable, the Son is immeasurable, the Holy Spirit is immeasurable. The Father is eternal, the Son is eternal, the Holy Spirit is eternal. And yet, 
There are not three eternal beings, but there is but one eternal being. So too, there are not three uncreated or immeasurable beings. There is but one uncreated and immeasurable being. Similarly, the Father is almighty, the Son is almighty, and the Holy Spirit is almighty. Yet there are not three almighty beings, but there is but one almighty being. Thus, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. Yet there are not three gods, but there, but there is but one God. Let me have someone pick up. All right, Crystal? Thus the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, the Holy Spirit is Lord. Yet there are not three lords, there is but one Lord. Just as Christian truth compels us to confess each person individually as both God and Lord, so Catholic religion forbids us to say that there are three gods or lords. The Father was neither made nor created nor begotten from anyone. The Son was neither made nor created, he was begotten from the Father alone. The Holy Spirit was neither made nor created nor begotten, he proceeds from the Father and the Son. Accordingly, there is one Father, not three fathers. There is one Son, not three sons. There is one Holy Spirit, not three Holy Spirits. Nothing in this Trinity is before or after. Nothing is greater or smaller. And in their entirety, the three persons are co-eternal and co-equal with each other. Okay. So just to note, when we see Catholic and uh, older creeds, it's not referring to the Roman Catholic Church. It's referring where Catholic means universal okay i just want to clarify that <laughs> okay who can pick up green anyone that desires to be saved yes well up one right yeah He suffered for our salvation. He descended to hell. He rose from the dead. He ascended to heaven. He is seated at the Father's right hand. For there will come, for, for there, from there rather, he will come to judge the living and the dead. At his coming, all people will arise bodily and give an account of their own deeds. Those who have done good will enter eternal life and those who have done evil will enter eternal fire. This is the Catholic faith. One cannot be saved without believing it firmly and faithfully. So again, 
looking at the Athanasian Creed, um, the early church thought it may have been written by Athanasius. Um, maybe not, but it's been come to it's come to be known as the Athanasian Creed, as it articulates Trinitarian theology. It's a good creed to to read over to to think about. There may be some things there where it's like, well, what does that mean? What does that mean? They're really good resources. Uh, this is one of them, uh, Creeds and Confessions and Catechisms uh, by Chad Van Dixhorn. A really good, helpful book to have. And there are other resources out there that just um, are sort of like a, a commentary on the creeds. But I wanted to read that and just to, to say that the early church really gave a lot of thought to how to be precise concerning the Trinity. They really wanted to be to be clear so that there wasn't a question about what the church believed. That doesn't mean we can fully grasp and fully understand God as triune. But as they looked at the scripture and used reason and thought, they wanted to, again, draw lines in the sand to say, well, we don't believe that, but we do believe this, which is why it's so long. They wanted to be thorough. And so I just give some thought to that and even read it when you get a chance. Um, and then we'll pick up next week. I got to run upstairs to the Chinese church to, to preach, but we'll, we'll pick up next week on part two as we think through um, in a bit more detail um, how God eternally exists um, as three, one. Okay? Let me pray for us.